Well, howdy. So this is the first time that um, we've ever uh, recorded kind of a podcast directly for um, internet podcasting listeners. Uh, evidently, we had some sort of problem with the recording on last week's um, sermon. Uh, so we're going to do it again, um, and that's okay. This is just a few days. This is Wednesday morning following the uh, original preaching of the sermon. Um, and uh, just wanted to take this opportunity to say uh, hello, hello and howdy out there to anybody who um, typically listens to our sermons online. We're just uh, thrilled that you're uh, involved and part of our community that way. Uh, if you'd like to learn anything more about our community, you can uh, reach out to us at, um, well, you can email me at jmiller at ournewhope.org. And if you do that, you can also request to get on our E New Hope mailing list, and we'll be happy to send that along to you. So this morning, we are thinking about 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're continuing in our series uh, called Holy and Faithful Mercies, uh, the life of David, the life of King David, King David the warrior, King David the shepherd, King David the, um, the man who God took from the pasture to the throne. Um, so David is now king. The prophet Judge Samuel has died. His his mentor, his, his Dumbledore, has died. Uh, King Saul has died. This, this man who, um, over the past ten chapters or so, ha- has been trying to kill David. Um, he's dead. And now Jonathan as well, uh, Saul's son Jonathan, who is, uh, was his best friend, the person he was probably closest to in the world. Um, he's dead. And the remarkable story of David's rise to power left him reflecting, reflective regarding those who were, for better or for worse, a part of that tale. Last week, Jason looked at David's lament over Israel's loss of these men. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you with crimson in luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. These extraordinarily generous words about a man who repeatedly attempted to kill David are astonishing. As Jason mentioned last week, these words are especially powerful because of how unselfish they are. Clearly, David's laments, um, clearly David laments the loss of of Jonathan, the, the, the person who probably meant the most to him in the world. But David begins this lament by saying, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Repeatedly, in the story of David's rise to power, he showed more than just a respect for King Saul the one whom he referred to as the Lord's anointed, the one who was set apart, the one who was consecrated by Almighty God to be king. He didn't want to slay the Lord's anointed in the cave, and he didn't want to slay the Lord's anointed while he slept. And when someone finally came and delivered the news that they had put Saul out of his misery after being slain on the battlefield, David struck him dead because he killed the Lord's anointed. There is a caution here for acknowledging the sacred that shouldn't be missed. 
This caution, I believe, is the key at understanding this rather strange story that we get in our text this morning. Here's the principle. God's holiness will not be compromised by human intentions, no matter how much they seem to make sense to us at the time. This Amalekite may have thought that he was going to be celebrated. Celebrated as the man who did the difficult but honorable thing. But no, David has no tolerance for someone who had actually destroyed something that God had anointed, regardless of whether or not he was David's enemy. He ordered the Amalekite to be executed at once. And so after his lament, David is first made king over the southern region of Judah for seven and a half years. And then after a further time of warfare with those who kind of felt that they were being loyal to Saul, David is made king over all Israel. David is now the king for Israel and Judah. It is said that David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. He is gathering power, gathering an army, gathering land, gathering wives. A large harem would have been a sign of of royal prestige and marriages were often a way of, of sealing treaties with other lands. So shortly after becoming king, he's victorious. He's victorious with God's help against another attack of the Philistines. And it would appear things are going quite well for David. It appears that, that he's destiny's man. Beginning in chapter 6, he gathers 30,000 chosen men. And he decides to do something that, that will show that a new day has dawned over the land of Israel. He decides that it's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David, ancient Jerusalem. It had been a long time since anyone had ever thought of the Ark. It had been stored in the house of a priest named Abinadab for the past 20 years, and now suddenly David remembers it in an attempt at solidifying his reign. Now, don't get me wrong. It was good for David to remember the ark. It may have even been good that David desired to move the ark closer to him, but he's on very thin ice. If he, can use, if he thinks that he could use something as powerful as the Ark of the Covenant, anyone's purposes but God's alone what's the ark of the covenant you ask well physically it was a golden chest where the Israelites kept among other things the stone tablets into which the ten commandments were carved in the years prior to Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan the ark was kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle only to be dealt with by the high priest under specific instructions the Ark of the Covenant was the, was the raw presence of Yahweh. Brueggemann says, The Ark bespeaks the dangerous and crucial presence of Yahweh in Israel and Yahweh's solidarity with Israel. The Ark embodies what is unifying among the tribes and clans of Israel. The Ark articulates and embodies for, for old Israel the holy rule of Yahweh. In a wise move of kind of dangerous calculation david is chosen to move the ark closer to himself and kind of therefore creating um, a legitimate reign any old conservatives any folks from the old crowd who wish to make a pilgrimage to the ark would now have to come to david god's king 
And the move is effective in the long term, but not without an earthquake of the reminder of who the real king is. So here's David, and he's got his 30,000 men, and they set out to bring the ark, the ark of the covenant, to ancient Jerusalem. Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of the, uh, Abinadab, Abinadab the priest, they load the ark up on an ox cart, and they set out for the city of David. Text says, David and all the house of Israel dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. See, this wasn't just moving day. This was a, this was a great celebration. Our long national nightmare is over. The king whom God has anointed is now on the throne. And now we're bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This is a call for a great parade with lots of laughter and joy and music and dance and everything's going to be great see there's david and he's dancing and there's a group of ladies and they're singing and there's a bunch of musicians and they're playing their tomb and then of course there's god there in his box and then everybody's happy because it's a new day and they're right they're right by the way it is a new day they have just cause to celebrate but then a funny thing happens the road, you see, it's not paved with asphalt. It's not all nice and smooth. This is the ancient world. It was, at best, a dirt road full of rocks and holes. It would have only made sense that the oxen would stumble from time to time um, and for the cart to rock. So this fellow Uzzah, the son of Abinadab the priest, was walking beside the cart when the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah reaches out his hand in order to steady the ark and make sure that the, it doesn't fall. Because how embarrassing would that be for the ark of the covenant to fall off this cart and then be just lying in the dirt. And so when his hand steadied the ark of the covenant, what happened? The, the clouds parted and a beam of light shone down from heaven and the voice of God said, thanks, Azza, you rock. Is that what happened? No, that's not what happened. The text tells us the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark and then he died there beside the ark of God. As I've mentioned before, my faith began in middle school. At first, the thing that meant the most to me were the people that were a part of the church where we were attending See, they didn't act like other people I knew. It would seem that they possessed a hope that was unlike anything that I had ever before experienced. It wasn't long before I listened to why it was exactly that they had this hope. Um, and I, I don't remember the exact date, but I, but I do remember feeling like God was present. Somewhere between 7th and 8th grade, I began to hear this idea that for God so loved the world, that he, gave, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. As a young teenager, I accepted this. I accepted Christ. But I'll honestly say that those words, they never really hit home for me until a few years later when I was introduced to the subject of theology. I had two hobbies in high school, rock music and theology. I've heard folks dismiss the topic of theology by saying things like, well, you know, I don't know the theology of it, but I know that God loves me. I, I just know it. 
And I want to shout back, I agree that God loves you and I'm glad you believe it. But that's no reason to reject theological principles. In fact, I think that the idea that God loves me and that I know that in my heart of hearts is the thing that drove me to want to find out more about his character, to pour into the church over the past 2,000 years and try to think about how we've understood his character, not just the church over the past 2,000 years, but the thousands of years before that through the, the, um, the history and for the tradition of the Hebrew people. There's a lot of things that uh, God has revealed to his people, and uh, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to understand that. So by the time I finished high school, there was one topic in the field of theology that just had me hooked. I wanted to know more about God's holiness. I, I went out and I bought these cassette tapes by R.C. Sproul called One Holy Passion on the Attributes of God. I still have it if you want to borrow it. I learned about God's aseity, his, his self-existence. Um, I learned about his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience. Most importantly, though, I learned about God's holiness. In Hebrew, the word holy comes from a root word that means to cut or to separate. There is something about the holiness of God that separates him from his creation. It's as if he is set apart from his creation in majestic holiness. More pointedly, he is separated from any hint of moral evil or sin. Like I mentioned in last week's Inu Hope, it would seem that holiness is like a synonym for God himself. And it is by virtue of his holiness that we can have no communion with sin at all, that he can have no communion with sin at all. So there's a vision in the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, of the prophet seeing the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Heavenly creatures who were in attendance over him called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The triple mention of the word holy intends the greatest severity of the attribute. God's not just holy. He's not just, you know, holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. We might say that holiness is defined as God's moral excellence or ethical perfection or integrity or transcendence. We might want to use words like faultless purity, but, but any words that we would use would ultimately fall short because what we're attempting to do is understand something that is by its very nature set apart in a way. So after seeing the vision of God on his throne, Isaiah is shook and he says, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The heavenly creatures take a live coal from the altar and they touch it to the prophet's lips. And they say to him, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. You see, here's the crazy thing about what theologians say about God's holiness. It's what we call what they call 
a communicable attribute of God. That is, although it comes from God, it can be replicated in human beings. In Leviticus, God tells Israel to be holy as I am holy. Deuteronomy says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And it's not just ancient Israel that is called to this. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of his call by saying that God gave him the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So evidently, God is holy, 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 and he will not, and indeed cannot, compromise that holiness. See, that's God's justice. God's grace is that he desires holiness for his people, for you and for me. There's just one problem with that. Sin. God wants nothing less for holiness for you and me. He wants nothing less than holiness for his people. And he's made it quite clear from Genesis onward that the wages of sin is death. Now, with that in mind, let's rewind our story back to Uzzah and the ark, back to Uzzah lying on the ground next to the Ark of the Covenant. First of all, what was the Ark doing on an ox cart in the first place? We can go back to the book of Exodus and see that there were specific instructions on how the Ark was supposed to be carried with poles that were inserted into rings on, attached to the Ark. The priestly house of Abinadab would have, should have, known this. The ox cart was a technological innovation. You see, say the priests, we, we've improved the old way by creating technology that will make us more efficient. It, it may have been more efficient, but as Eugene Peterson says, it was also less personal. The replacement of consecrated persons by an efficient machine. The impersonal crowding out the personal. The Ark of the Covenant and the, um, and the tabernacle, tabernacle generally it, it, the point of the Ark of the Covenant and of the tabernacle generally is that God was a personal God who wanted to dwell with his people. Uzzah and his brother had taken for granted the holy, the set-apart task for caring for the Ark and had attempted to, to manage God through some technological innovation for those with ears to hear. Also, the reason why the ark needed to be carried by poles was that God told them that the ark was never supposed to be touched by human hands because it was more than a symbol of God's holiness. We could say that. Uzzah's self-justifying motives may have had the best of intentions, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that I learned from, uh, from R.C. Sproul when, when, when he... Um, offered interpretation of this passage he says that Uzzah's presumptuous sin believed was believing that his hand was less filthy in the eyes of God than the dirt of the ground God's holiness will not be compromised and the wages of sin is death this is a tough lesson to learn my friend 
especially for Uzzah. Uh, but if it seems a bit harsh, let me just offer um, a few thoughts as we close. Number one, if you read this text, as many have, and immediately get angry and immediately um, wonder about the justice of God here, uh, you are in good company. Uh, the text says that David, for instance, became very angry with God. He didn't understand God's actions, and it says that David was, this, this is a huge line in the Davidic narrative, in the Davidic epic, um, David was afraid of the Lord that day. I mean, this is David. This, this is Psalm 23, David. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. David became so afraid that he abandoned the effort and left the ark at a nearby house. The fact that David was upset doesn't make God's actions unjust, of course, but I do think that we're supposed to raise an eyebrow here. This is supposed to sting. Stories like this are, are supposed to wake us up to the reality that God's holiness is not something we manage. David is, is shook up by this episode, but he does recover. He comes back for the ark and he continues the joyous celebration of bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And, and Scripture tells us that he danced before the Lord with all his might. An encounter with the holy God, it shook David at first. Because it should have. It was difficult seeing Uzzah lying there. And it should shake us all. But then, there's a sort of dance. There's a dance that drives you to praise God for being a God that does not, will not, cannot compromise His holiness. Now, this story also drives me to the realization that I could have very easily have been Uzzah, assuming that my religion is the proper box for God. Like Isaiah, in comparison to God's character, um, uh, his holy, holy, holy character, my sin, like Isaiah, has no place in his presence. He will not permit it. Now, we hear that, and we immediately demand justice. We say, well, that's not fair, God. Come on, God. Nobody's perfect. God says, you're right. No one's perfect. But my holiness will not be compromised. And make no mistake, I'm calling you to be holy. And if you're not, if you miss the mark, even in the slightest discretion, the wages of sin is death. Because I will not. I cannot compromise my holiness. If you want another kick in the pants, understand that another piece of God's character, God's holy character, is His love. His love will also not be compromised. And the truth is that He loves you and me, He loves us far too much to accept anything less than holiness for each and every one of us. So in the midst of our anger, we're yelling at God because he was so unjust to Uzzah. 
and he exposes our sin and he refuses to to allow entrance into his holy presence we claim he's asking us to live into these impossible expectations god how could you do something so unfair in that moment when we're screaming at god god goes and does the most holy the most loving the most merciful thing that he could do in order to invite his people into his holiness he sends his son jesus christ to die on the cross for the sins of humanity not because of these righteous things that we've done not because we have somehow earned god's holiness or merited god's holiness but because of his mercy because of his holiness because of his mercy he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness the holiness of god it's said that god's holiness motivates not only his judgment but also his salvation why did god strike us a dead because holiness demanded it why did jesus die on the cross because holiness demanded it it was aslan himself who would get on that table and offer himself the evil On the cross, God poured out His wrath on Jesus. The only one who didn't deserve it. The only one who didn't deserve death in order that He might offer life and holiness to His creation. See, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters by Me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture the thief the thief he comes to steal and kill and destroy but i i have come that they might have life and have it abundantly jesus has come that we might have life that we might have holiness, that we might have righteousness, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. Bold, we approach the eternal throne. And we do that all through the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, our most holy King. It's all about Him. I love how Paul's most popular prepositional phrase in in, in his writings, in Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. We sang on Sunday morning before the the sermon, we sang, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain? (laughs) That's a powerful image. It's a powerful image that when we think about how I can somehow enter into the Lord's holiness, and even in the midst of me yelling at him and thinking that, that, that he is unfair by creating some impossible expectations, he says, yeah, I go and do the impossible. I do the impossible for you. It's not about what you're doing for me. Next week, we're going to learn about how David attempts to build a temple, um, or he's going to try, he's going to say, oh, wow, I'm going to build a temple for God. And God's going to say, you're not building anything for me. I mean, we may get to that down the road, or maybe one of your ancestors will, but no, no, what matters here, David, is what I'm doing through you. 
I'm in charge of my holiness because it will not be compromised. Trust in me. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for, um, for this story. We thank you for the fact that this is a difficult story. And we lay our questions, we lay our wrestlings um, at your feet. We lay them at the foot of the cross. Um, we submit, we surrender to your holiness. We surrender to, um, to your plan. Uh, and we accept that these ideas, these plans that we have, or these um, justifications that we have for our own deeds are inconsequential compared to your plan, to your holy plan, even though it doesn't make sense to us sometimes. But God, we thank you that there are times when you do remind us that even in the midst of pain, there is joy. There are things that, that remind us that you are around, that you are surrounding us, that you are a part of our lives. And Father, I just I lay all of this to you. And I just would pray that, um, that you would um, keep us uh, in check, uh, guiding us on the path of righteousness and helping us to repent from these areas that, um, that run counter to that. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we'll see you next week.